already, huh? Amen? And I'm getting up here to begin preaching with 10 minutes left in the service. A little bit more, but uh, I think we can figure this out together. Um, I wanted to um, make sure just this morning uh, that, that our focus on that was, um, was uh, just uh, very apparent and in the spotlight today. Um, I did want to mention here as we get moving forward our Christmas um, plans just overall. We have Christmas Eve service here on the 24th at 6 p.m. We are taking Sunday morning, which is Christmas morning on the 25th off. We would prefer that you would be with your family celebrating Christmas in that way, maybe leading them through a family devotional if you so choose to do so. I just want you to make sure don't show up here on the 25th that Sunday morning also after that the watch night party is on new year's eve i can't remember exactly when that's starting but look at your um uh bulletin to see where those things go and then our next discipleship course will be launching in january so if you're interested or couldn't do it the first time or this last season make sure that you think about it moving forward um go ahead and open uh i'm going to turn corners and jump right into something with you all today I'm, I'm really excited about what is about to be shared it's something that god has been putting on me that i feel like I, I, in my head i'm like maybe i should just wait and put this on for next week uh but i got to get it off and onto you as we start the advent season and begin in expectancy go ahead and open to john 1 john chapter 1 we'll get here in just a second john 1 one. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 here in just a second. Um, I wanted to say, I always say this, I start this season with saying Merry Christmas. And sometimes like apologetically thinking, oh, is it too early? Not really. I mean, the Christmas came, whether, whether you were ready for it or not. We got the lights up, the decorations are moving forward. Um, I, one of the things that I love about Christmas is when you take all the things you've been hiding for 11 months and pull them up out of the attic and bring them back out for this season. You got decorations, trees come out, ornaments, you got your ugly Christmas sweater. Maybe you didn't know it was an ugly Christmas sweater, but... It's a good Christmas sweater, no doubt. And then there's New Year's uh, Eve that you start to prepare, or sorry, uh, Christmas Eve that you start to prepare your hearts. We have a candle lighting service wherein we celebrate that the light has come into the world. And um, in, in all of these things, um, we also have a, 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 a very sacred uh, tradition of Christmas time movies, right? Now, some of you listen, watch, uh, sorry, watch Christmas movies all year round. It's weird. It's a little weird. Uh, but you do. This is the season when the rest of us catch up to what you've been enjoying all year. And uh, one of my favorite ones is famously known for one of the most quotable lines, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, right? The Christmas story, if you're not familiar with it, it's like this awkward kid. He's trying to navigate life um, and he's dealing with bullies in the neighborhood, like icicles are falling, trying to take his eye out as well. There's car breakdowns and him trying to navigate cursing and these different things, the, the, the dynamics of if you can stick your tongue to something freezing outside and uh, kids getting themselves stuck. And, and the whole thing is kind of him moving towards this trajectory, this expectation, all he wants for Christmas. <laughs> Do you know it? is a Red Ryder carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle. He wants a BB gun. And everyone he asks says the same thing. You're going to shoot your eye out, kid. They keep reminding him, you're just not old enough for this. By the end of the movie, Ralphie, he learns a lot about life, right? He overcomes his bully in the neighborhood. He learns how to deal with peer pressure. He learns a little bit about the thermodynamics of not touching anything to freezing cold that is wet outside. He's persistent throughout it, keeping track of what he wants, and sometimes uh, he learns, sometimes wishes do come true. Christmas stories, like all stories, have this message. 
it's a moral that they want to convey to us. Some of the most popular ones, and I have a few, just kind of a, a montage. Sorry, I should have said this first. A montage of Christmas movies. Like some of the most beloved all-time Christmas movies, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and This Christmas. What do they teach? Well, that families are crazy, but in the end, they're here for you. They, they, are, they are what this season has a lot to do with, even if that means kidnapping your brother's horrible boss. Don't try that, please, don't try that. You got movies like The Preacher's Wife and Miracle on 34th Street that remind us that maybe there's more than meets the eye and miracles possibly can happen in our day and age. Movies like Serendipity or Last Christmas teach us that this could be a season of romance or perhaps finding that person that you've been hoping to meet. Movies like Die Hard, uh, it has no moral. Uh, there's no moral whatsoever. You all can debate whether it's a Christmas movie or not. But think about Christmas classics like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It gives us hope that people can change from bitterness to joy. And as different as all of these different movies could be, they all have kind of two things in common. One is that they claim to give us an aspect of the true meaning of the story of Christmas, right? They want to give you some aspect of this. Goodwill, generosity, hope. Um, in some way, this is an aspect of Christmas that we really want you to see as the true meaning. But what I think is really cool is that they all, as a second thing, understand that stories are really important. And that there's power in storytelling. In fact, stories are so powerful, they help us to send messages. They're useful for conveying different ideas. They remind us of things that maybe we have forgotten. Christmas is an annual rhythm of this, right? There's ideas that stories teach us new ideas and even form our thought patterns. They persuade you. If you didn't realize it, every commercial this Christmas season is trying to tell you a story. That if you just had this one product... Four installments of 1999, you will be happy, you will be whole, you will have joy and shalom or peace, right? They're using story to sell a product. It's not new. Stories have been used in cultures to shape cultures, to, um, to, to help us become aware of things. Ancient people have always done this. Sociological disciplines like anthropology, epistemology, they're all developed to help us understand how narratives affect, preserve, and shape the culture around us. So in this season of storytelling and all the narratives that we can see up on this screen, all the ones that I even missed that maybe you have in your mind and your heart... We're asking you to do two things. And so I'm going to start with my ending. I'm going to give you my application right now. I want you to pay attention to the stories that are being told. Every story you read, every uh, uh, book you might come across, every movie you might listen to, even every commercial, all the stories you might hear. And I want you to put your discernment hat on and think to myself, what is this story trying to tell me? What good news is it attempting to persuade me towards. And then the second thing is this. I want you to give your fullest attention to the Christmas story that's found in these scriptures. Put this one in the spotlight this season and weigh it against the other things that are happening. And I'm not saying that as an obvious, they're all just bad compared to some of them are communicating messages from these scriptures. But what I want to do is to introduce our Advent series by looking at the Gospel of John. So um, I've already asked you to turn to it. John chapter 1, verse 1. John, if you didn't know, is the most poetic, I would call it prophetic, version of Jesus' birth. He's not as literal. He's going to give us lots of images and symbols that I'm going to have to help us unpack today. And so this Gospel calls us into not just discerning of a story, but the recollection of Israel's history, which we now call the Old Testament, right? So there are two main connections. 
All right, two very clear connections that John wants us to think about as he opens up this, uh, this narrative of the nativity that we, that we celebrate every year. And so this is what it says. To, to catch if you can, uh, see if you can catch which two narratives of the Old Testament. In the, what? Bells should be going off. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God, sorry, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was what? Life. And that life was the what? Light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So John is clearly trying to echo something. These first, the, not, not just any something, the very first lines of the entire Bible in Genesis 1-1, the creation story. And it's pretty obvious that you see this, but what you may not realize is that what John is doing is setting up his gospel, his version of Jesus's life by creating a, pre, like, a, a, a prologue. Right? He is going to give us this little um, precursor, just like when you start a movie and it's that blank screen and then words come up and it's either in a galaxy far, far away, right, somewhere um, else, or it, it will give you the context like back in this time there was a conflict that took place. And almost always, what do they end with? An ellipsis, because they're just setting you up to say, okay, now here is the rest of the movie and we're going to tell you what happens next. John is doing the exact same thing, and I'm going to make it real clear by the end of this. And he starts all the way back, that if you really want to understand Jesus, you got to go way to the back, back, to the very beginning of the beginning, to the creation of all things, the cosmos. And so Jesus is described with some really beautiful language, light and life. He's using celestial, cosmic uh, description and imagery, imagery. He reminds us of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the heavens, all of the things that we might look up at a night sky or a daytime and see. But remember that those objects are always meant to just point to that sun's bright, it's great, it's warm, but there is a greater light, a brighter light, and a warmer light that is to come. They're object lessons telling us that the Son of God will one day be in our midst. And by the way, the darkness has not overcome it. Well, what is that? Have you ever wondered, why does it say that? Well, one of the greatest features of Genesis 1-1 is that it stood in the midst of lots and lots of other creation stories that were taking place around that time, floating around almost always, and I, and I mean that very, very, almost all of them involve competition between two deities and creation being brought forth out of some form of violence and death. And so the prevailing religious um, creation story at that time was coming out of Babylon. And in that story, there's this great battle between gods wherein the loser's body is cut up, scattered across the cosmos to become the stars, the moon, the sun, and the earth, all of creation in that time. And if your creation, listen to this, if your creation story begins with violence and death, how might that inform the way you view the world? Well, with violence and death, right? In contrast, the Jewish creation story starts with something different. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if you're alive during this time and all you've heard your entire life is this other story, what you're going to hear when you read that, what you're going to think when you hear someone proclaim that idea, you're going to say, well, wait, 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 where's the other gods? 
And the Jewish answer would be, oh, there isn't any, just one God. Oh, yeah, okay, so, so who does God have to fight for control over the universe with? Nobody. There, there isn't anyone else like this God. There, there's no equal who even compares in order to compete. He alone has all control, and he just always had it. Okay, well, if, that, if there isn't a dead body that we cut up and, and use to create all of the things that we see now, then by what material did you use to create the heavens and the earth? No death necessary. This is a God who literally just speaks. And from nothing, the heaven and the earth, light and life exist. So what's the point? Why is John bringing our attention to this? Well, in just the opening line, he's helping us to understand that you have not heard any other story like the story you're about to hear. This isn't like the other. This doesn't involve death. This doesn't involve violence. This is not the story like the ones you have heard. And this God, Yahweh, he is not like the other gods you have ever heard of. That's the first line. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And if you're sitting here reading this narrative in a linear way, you're thinking, wait a minute, what, what did we just like turn left? I, what are you talking about? It seems like an interruption, a complete shift in the subject matter. And you're like, okay, I guess, cool. There's a guy named John and he's a testifier. He comes to bear witness to Jesus. It's like this prophetic second opinion that gets brought in out of nowhere. Uh, but if nothing else, it makes us very clear that John is not the point. He's second to the point. All right, so let's keep reading and we'll come back to that. Verse 9 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not re receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So a great light to whom all creation was pointing, sorry, the great light to whom all creation was pointing, and the Jewish people were being brought to bring their attention towards in great expectation, God's own people, they've been waiting for this. It has finally come into the world, but they didn't receive it or see the light. And so it's like you see God say, well, fine, you know, I'll go outside the family then, and I'm going to bring anyone who wants to accept me into my household and let them become children of me. So as we keep going, uh, we see the writer John begin to dig into this idea. It, in a very real way, as the saying goes, the plot thickens because we usually teach this next line, verse 14, as the end cap to what we just read. Let me read it to you. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. But this is what I want you to see. This actually isn't the ending of the first thought. He is beginning a completely new thought. And he's hyperlinking us back to another story inside of the Old Testament. Can anyone guess which one that is? I'll open it up. Anyone know? Huh? We're quiet. We're quiet. Well, it kind of makes sense because today's translation 
is not as obvious. Let me give you a more literal translation. It says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his tent, his tent or tabernacle amongst us. So now we have some context for it. Where have we seen a tabernacle represent the tangible presence of God's glory within it? Well, during Israel's wanderings inside of the wilderness, right? Moses is at the helm as their main leader. John actually starts over with a brand new second introduction to his entire gospel. So he gives us the one with creation, then he starts over, and this one now comes from imagery taken out of Exodus. Why is he doing that? Let's keep reading and I'll tell you. Verse 15, it says, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now you should be thinking, wait, we already talked about that John guy. Why are we doing it again? Why why is this being brought up, right? And you can kind of have two responses. One is annoyance or the other one is curiosity, right? Maybe you're annoyed. You're like, hey, we've already listened to this. Why is, he, why is the writer repeating himself unnecessarily? But if you're curious, you might see this. There's repetition. Anytime there's repetition inside of Hebrew writing, there's a reason for it. He's trying to make a point. And so our question should actually be, what is the writer wanting us to see that we're not seeing? Well, John doesn't want us just to read this section in a linear fashion. What do I mean? Like we, we read this section, then this section, and then we keep going chronologically. That's the way our minds are built, right? What he wants you to do is to take these two sections, leave the first one, grab that other one, and put it underneath it because that's what we do with poems and songs. You see? He wants us to read these two things like a refrain. And so I'm going to give you a quick little picture. I'm geeky enough that I made just a quick little table for you all to see. All right, don't worry about the fine print. Bear with me through this. I'm going to bring this together. Trust me. We have section one that talks about the word and what it becomes, life, light. And in the second one, it's a tabernacle and glory. Then section two to the right John comes as a witness, and then we see it again that John testifies as Jesus being greater than himself. Then section three, the response to all of those things happening. How does everyone respond to it? Well, in the first one, God's own did not receive him, but those who did receive him will become his own children. Actually, take that picture off right now because we haven't read that last response. Don't look, don't look. I'm going to read it to you. Section three gives us the final outcome here. From creation to incarnation, what is the result of the word? Well, if the first one gives us an introduction to a theme and the next one gives us a witness, just like in a court of law, to make sure that there are two or more bearing witness to the truth of this, then how do we respond to this last one? Well, verse 16 says this. Verse 16 says this. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given for the law was given through Moses that's the Ten Commandments grace and truth came through Jesus Christ so John is setting us up he just wrote a beautiful poem to intro his gospel to give us one line and then a second line that puts us on a trajectory as we read this we're supposed to recall what what happened in Exodus Moses ascends onto a mountain, encounters God, comes down with the Ten Commandments, and what does he find immediately? A golden calf and a rebellious people worshiping an idol instead of God. Well, in this time, 
What do the gods do with rebellious, sinful people but punish them? But what does God do? He refuses to depart because at least you would have lost the loyalty of your God at that point. But Moses wants God, even himself, he says, punish these people. In fact, he grinds up the golden calf, puts it in a liquid, and makes them eat it. Weird, but geez, he's made his point clear. Instead of punishment, God revealed his goodness to Moses again. He brings his presence down off the mountain and into the camp, into their midst, through the tabernacle, so that they can know he's there. He has not departed. He is there to lead and to shepherd them. So God's response is grace. Similarly, Jesus gave himself to people who didn't want to receive him. Does God depart? No, he incarnates himself and tabernacles amongst us once again. He gives us grace again. Now, if you didn't catch it, just to tie it again to the first part, Yahweh is still communicating that story about the other gods. This is a different story. And I am a God that is unlike all of the other ones you have ever known. And I love the way this last verse is one line I haven't read yet. This last verse 18 says, says this, verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father has made, and some of your translations say him known. Some of them say has made known him, but him is not in there. Because the intention of the writer was to set you, just like any other good prologue, with an ellipsis. So the ending here is actually, has made known, what, John? John, what? Made known what? Well, for that, you have to read the rest of the gospel. And he leaves you with this prologue to say, oh, man, what's your appetite? I got to find out. I got to find out how he becomes the fullness of these two images that you've just brought to mind so poetically. And now I got to read this gospel now, here and now, so I can understand what happened. Now, I don't have time to go into the fullness of it. It's full on Easter mode when it happens. But the final conclusion echoes the last line of Genesis. It is finished. So he concludes it. This is what I want us to walk away from today. I told you the application at the beginning. Pay attention to stories this season and ask yourself what gospel, good news, what message, what image are they trying to portray to me? What is the good news that they are selling me? Have your discernment hat on because as you read the true story of God, put this in the spotlight. I want you to compare the two and say that's very Jesus-like or that is not very Jesus-like. This is the story by which we weigh all other stories. There's plenty of stories proclaiming the true gospel of this Christmas season. And at least two times, God has made sure to make us understand, yeah, but this story is not like the other stories you've heard. This God is not like the other gods that you've heard in your time. And so I want to end us with this idea, and we'll pray and finish out today. If the story of materialism is saying to you that you're not complete without a product, know that wholeness, shalom, and the completion that you seek is found in Christ alone. If the gods of slavery through debt are flooding your airways this season, 
know that Yahweh has an emancipation story unlike any other story you have ever heard in your life. If there is the voice of loneliness tempting you to despair, know that when all others might depart, Yahweh says, I never depart. I never leave. If the voice of the law says, you're not good enough, know that there is grace found in Jesus Christ because God has always been in the business of letting us know that his good news is not temporary. It is not insufficient good news. It is not like those other stories that the world might offer you. Jesus is light and Jesus is life. Jesus is creator and he dwells amongst his people. He never leaves us and he brings that glory and grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We could be here all day and I wouldn't have the words to describe it. Upon grace, upon grace for any and everything that is required of you this season. And so I want to leave us with that as I pray. The only thing that we are required on our end is to see the fullness found within him and to receive it freely. Can you do that this year? Can you do that this season? Can you do that maybe for the first time ever? Let's pray. You know, Father, thank you so much that as we see light and life and grace and creation and you dwelling amongst your people, refusing to depart, but always bringing us back together, that you speak a better story, that you speak a good news that is better than anything else that would compete for whatever definition of good news might be out there. And so when we see the grace of you on a movie, in a song, in a Christmas carol, Father, if it's your truth, it's truth. It's okay, we'll claim that, God, but there may be some corrections in there that we realize we've bought into some other idol, some other means of fulfilling ourselves, some other way of trying to put inside of us what is meant for you to be present in. And so, God, where we find those things, would you help us to root those things out so that we can finally rest, quit striving and finally rest, so that we can quit longing and just know that you're there so that we can continue the battle of what it means to live this life as a human with all the things that we bring into it knowing that we can lay even our bitterness, our doubt, our hardships at your feet because you'll take them all so Father for every voice hearing us right now in person, online, wherever they are at God, would you help make that exchange that we would freely receive you in any way that you want us to today and throughout this year. We ask for this right now. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.